welcome to another episode of the Fit Professional One podcast. I'm thrilled to have you with us. I have Cam Jackson with me today. Cam is a lifelong friend. We go back a long way. And Cam had just a fabulous career in a very important genre of professionalism we want to talk about today. And before I talk more about that, I just want Cam to introduce yourself and tell us your background. Okay. And I- Excuse me if I read from some notes, but it was kind of fun looking looking at my background. So I was born in Lakewood, California in 1961, same year that Paul was born. And my father got his PhD at USC in English literature when I was one year old. So when I was one, our family moved to Boulder, Colorado, and we lived in Boulder for about seven years. And both my parents were educators. My mom ended up being a substitute teacher due to some health issues, but my dad was a full-time professor. In Colorado, he was kind of caught up in the publisher parish phase back then in the late 60s. And he decided that he wanted to go to a teaching college because what he really wanted to focus in on was teaching. So he ultimately moved to UW-Eau Claire, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and became a teacher at the university here. So I basically lived in Eau Claire from first grade on. So that Paul and I met as grade school competitors, actually, playing basketball against each other, among other things. And then when I got to high school, I played basketball and tennis on the varsity level, and Paul and I were actually doubles partners on the tennis team and qualified for the state tournament, which is one of my highlights in terms of my high school athletic career. Some other things that happened while I was in Eau Claire, I was very involved in the youth leadership program at the YMCA. And then I think that kind of instilled an interest in counseling and working with other people in me at a very young age, along with my parents being educated. College, I went to Lawrence University and I graduated in four years. I had a BS in science. I actually majored in geology and I played varsity basketball and varsity tennis all four years that I was at Lawrence University. I was a captain of the basketball team junior and senior year, and I was a captain of the tennis team my senior year. Again, I said I graduated in four years, but I enjoyed my time at Lawrence, and I was a few credits short of getting the educational end of the degree to have a teaching certification. So I went back an extra year and was a head resident and intramural coordinator, and I ran the campus bar, basically. And then after I graduated, the year in between, I had kind of another life-altering experience where I worked at a camp called Trailblazer Camps. And that actually initially was life camps, and it was based out of Brooklyn, New York, but it's centered in Northwestern New Jersey, and it takes young adults or young children who are referred by social service agencies for having leadership potential but they may come from difficult situations. So it was rural kids from New Jersey who who had some issues in the background and then kids from the inner city of New York, Bed-Stuy, Harlem, and areas like that where they wanted to get them out into nature and teach them skills and leadership programming and teach them how to be more independent and get away from some of the issues that they're dealing with. And that was a really kind of a life-changing event too, because I found that this is an area and an element that I really thrived in. So the kids had to build their own shelters, build their own beds, dig their own latrines, plan their own meals. And there's a story I'll tell later about one of the things that we did with one of the groups of kids that kind of really pushed the envelope, which to the point where it scared the administrators of the camp, but we went ahead and did it anyways. <laughs> you always want to kind of push the boundaries. So I finished up my ed requirements, and then I spent the summer of 1984 kind of having fun. I went out to the Summer Olympics and as a spectator and enjoyed that. And I came back in late August 
on a Friday saw a job posting for a science teaching position in the Chicago area where my now wife lived. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go down and check it out. So I drove down on a Monday, interviewed on Tuesday and started teaching on a Friday. Wow. And that was in, that was in 1984. And I've been in the Chicago, greater Chicago area ever since. So I had a provisional teaching certification in Illinois. So I taught for two years at a school called Elmwood Park High School. I taught chemistry and earth science. And I also coached, I was the head girls basketball coach and I was the head girls tennis coach. It was a smaller school. So there weren't a whole lot of people to cover all the areas. So I, you know, I jumped into some areas and I had actually the second year that I was there, I knew the, the, the track staff very well and they asked me to join their staff. So I actually was a pole vault coach for the year also at the school because we had a, a very good pole vault and they needed somebody to work with him. So I did that while I was teaching. I found myself doing so much counseling with the students before school, between periods and after school that, you know, I kind of looked at the path that I had taken and the teaching that I was doing and what was going on in the counseling office. And I thought, you know what, I think I really want to pursue a direction in counseling. So I went back to graduate school at the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and I got a master's in science and counseling psychology, basically. And concurrently, while I was doing that, I was working for Evanston Hospital Corporation, working with individuals and families on a dual diagnosis unit with psychiatric issues and substance abuse issues with adolescents. And after I got my degree, I stayed there for a while. It was I actually became a therapist on the unit. But there was always this pull for me to go back to the coaching and the educational world. So I had opportunities to stay on that within the hospital and within the therapeutic setting. But I also stayed connected with some people at the high school that I had done my counseling internship with. And they let me know that there was an opening. So I went back for a year there at Evanston High School. And I was a counselor for a year at Evanston. And I coached the freshman A basketball team. Then I was RIF, which at the time was a reduction in force, and I needed security because Susie was pregnant with our first child, Stuart. And so I asked our personnel director at the time if, if she could get my name out there. So a school called Leiden came after me, and actually the principal ultimately knocked on my door with a contract. So I was very lucky there at, at the house that I was living at. So I was at Leiden High School for 31 years. Wow. Yeah, so 31 years. As a counselor for 31 years, 18 of which, I was the student service chair, and then I kind of counseled on both ends. I was the counselor, then student services chair, then counseled on the back end. And during that time, I coached basketball when I first entered, but then I ended up kind of settling in long-term into boys and girls tennis. So I was a head coach of boys and girls tennis until I got the student services chair position. And then I knew that I would be spread a little too thinly with some of the requirements of a head coach. So I was an assistant coach. I stepped back and was an assistant coach for much of my career in terms of that athletic piece of it. And anything else, I would say the one thing I, that did pop to my head in terms of kind of leadership and interesting things is I was a jury foreman twice in my lifetime in the Chicago area. And, you know, both times you, you meet with a large group of people, I ended up being a foreman. And I think part of that was because of what I the experiences that I had and some of the things that I'd done. When one was a civil trial and one was a criminal trial, one was a murder trial. So very interesting situations, but I was able to bring some of the practices that I had had in coaching, in counseling, in leading a department into those worlds. So, that, you know, those are kind of some of the highlights of my career. Wow. And congratulations. Yeah. 
I mean, I learned a couple of things about you too. You're so damn modest. You don't talk about many of those things, but it's clear you kind of work this. You've had a service mentality your whole life, haven't you? And super high character. I'm sure big part of it came from your family too. Absolutely. But it, it's just really fun to hear that. And I'm excited to have you. And thanks for coming. Because I thought about this whole idea of how there's such a cerebral and emotional aspect to our lives that we, and the physical aspect, we tend to forget as professionals. Mm -hmm. And we we're just chatting a little bit before we started to record about how people fade over time. And I've had several guests on now, and I have a feeling we'll be back to this topic. Maybe you can come back. We haven't even started, but I'm thinking, holy crap, there's a lot to talk to Cam about. But we roll forward and I'm thinking to myself before I contacted you that this guy's just perfect to come in and talk about this connection all the way from kids that start student athletes and then my play on words as fit professionals. Mm -hmm later in life and how so much of what we learn, it can, it doesn't mean it always does, but for so many people it fades and they start to not do the things, have the relationships, all the things that combine to make them successful and then life happens right. and we get in a silo kind of. I can't explain it any better for now, but I really have the objective of having you in here, Cam, to share with us more, share with us stories. And if you can take us through the progression and ultimately for a listener, we really want them to end up with some takeaways that they can consider. Maybe we don't give them an ABC action plan, but we want to get them thinking about right. themselves their staffs, their peers, even their owners, every, all the human element of what they're doing. And the guests I've had so far, we've just barely touched on one of the components to the human animal. You know, I've been talking about the physical, the mental and the emotional, and you dealt so much with the emotional mm -hmm. component. And again, I want to throw it back to you with one last comment is just, we both know about the emotional component of sports. Yeah. And you're welcome to tell some of my horror stories because that would be interesting to talk about. But Rob Lee, a world champion mountain biker I had on, and we kind of had a moment where we both reminisced about that point in athletics where you feel panic for various reasons. And we got to remember that there's magnitude to panic. Yes. So panic can be debilitating and you pass out. I'm not talking about that, but this heart rate up, sweat up, and then this thing called cognitive dissonance that I'm not sure I completely understand. And I know you're a pro there, but the ability over time using training to kind of master that and get that under control, which took me a long time. Right, right. Know, but have at her. Well, you know, it may at the time, I think at the time you and I have talked frequently about when we were playing tennis together, outside, off the tennis court, you were going through some difficult times. Oh, sure. You know, and yeah. the tennis court became a sanctuary at times, but at times then it also was a trigger. Yeah. So that it's learning how, okay, wait a minute, you know, it, it's not the catastrophe that you think it is. You know, we can step back and we're fine. We're going through this together. It's, it's going to work. And that's the beauty of, of working with the doubles partners. You can kind of talk to each other. You can work around stuff. You can reset. And then one of the things that I talk to my athletes about all the time is resetting the computer, you know, and clear the computer. You know, that's fine. The last shot's your last shot. Move on to the next. But it's also the beauty of what I did in turn, both in the counseling office and on the sporting field with a lot of students, not all students, but with a lot of students, I got to spend four years with them. 
hmm. which is a huge amount of time for that age of, you know, it's a high school age. So we're a nine through 12 comprehensive high school. So I could have discussions in my office with counseling students three or four years into our relationship that I would never have one or two years into it. It's the process. It's the hmm. actually sitting down, doing the hard work and teaching them. And I think part of the book that you and I read is teaching them that it's the internal that's actually going to drive you ultimately. It's going to be what you've internalized, the strengths that you bring to it, and how you define those that are really important. Mm -hmm. so. And for reference, we, Cam read Do Hard Things, which I've referenced before. Again, highly recommended, but that's the book by Steve Magnus. So we'll be touching on some of his concepts along the line too. Yeah, yeah. So as an example, I guess, of one of the things, the Trailblazer camps is the theme of the camp is that you're with the kids a lot longer than a normal camp. So there's only really two sessions. I can't remember if it was three or four weeks, but so you'd really get to know the kids and you'd really be able to do some planning with them and some teaching and do some exciting things. And so it was between the first session because I was new to the camp and I was learning about its history and, and what they were trying to accomplish and the goals that they have. And the second one where some of the, you know, the, the leaders said, well, we really want you to do something, you know, more. We want you to push the envelope a little bit. And at the time I had been there long enough where I was aware that the Appalachian Trail ran through the, through the property. So I sat down with my co-leader, there were two of us in our small camp and it's a decentralized camp. So our specific camp, because we had the oldest kids was a mile away from everything. So we had to hike in to get any food, hike back out and anything in the camp we were responsible for. So like I said, building our own shelters and digging our own latrine and, and cooking all our own meals and, and meal planning. And because it was a subsidized educational program, we had to follow certain federal health guidelines too. So we had to make sure that the kids were eating healthy and three, three meals a day. And, and those kind of, kind of interesting things, which were for me at the time was really good for me to learn in terms of just physical health, in terms of eating and eating properly, coming out of a college setting. No. You don't always eat properly. No. So my, so my long story short is I looked at a map and picked a spot 60 miles away from the camp. Wow. And I told my co-camper, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have them drop us off here and we're going to hike back with the kids. And we did, and it was about 10 miles a day. This was not a camp that was equipped for hiking at the time, but we, so we had heavy packs, cast iron skillets, six days worth of rations. And luckily we were very lucky in that it didn't rain along the way until the last day we were kind of like maybe three or four miles back from camp, but we basically slept under the stars for six nights and then made it back. And the accomplishment that the kids felt was, was really, really fun to be a part of because they, they owned it. And then kind of one of the ceremonial things you do at the end of the camp is one of our campers lit a fire with, you know, the, the flint and some twigs and stuff. So you had to, you know, it's like real learning how to survive camping in, in some respects. And we had a kid within our group who really stuttered a lot. So we, as a group, we sat down and say, okay, you know, we really don't want to put him in a situation because everybody's supposed to share their experience. And we, you know, we don't want to have him stand in front of all the other campers because there were six different camps. So probably, about, oh, you know, 70 or 80 kids, boys, because the boys were on one side of the lake and the girls were on the other. So how could we troubleshoot that. And what we ended up coming up with was we rewrote a song as a group and were able to sing it. And of course he was one of the ones who was singing the loudest and proudest. Oh, nice. because 
it, the focus wasn't on him. The focus was on the team and what we had done and trying to share our story. So, you know, that the whole process of that and learning and, you know, and knowing that I made some mistakes along the way, but overall it was, you know, a, kind of a, like I said, a life-changing thing where I was like, I can see myself doing this kind of as a career. That's something that it had to be life-changing for the kids. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. And maybe you can opine or share just the physicality of that. I mean, it's 10 miles a day for anybody with a heavy pack, mm -hmm. like yeah. skillets in the back. But, but the good thing was that's hard for anyone. You know, they were, they were 14 to 16 year olds and they all bought into it and we all supported each other. And there was always concern about, you know, water, but I had identified springs along the way. And, you know, the administrators, as it got closer and closer and closer, you could tell that they were getting more and more nervous and like, you know, well, what if this happens and what if this happens? And I said, well, you know, we'll always be within range of being able to step off the trail and, and get some help if we need it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, it was fun to watch their reactions too, because they, you know, we want you to push the envelope. But then when I said, okay, I'm going to push the envelope. They, yeah. they, they like, they wanted to make sure I had safety plans. And, and So I don't know what's the right way to ask this question kind of across the average kid or a kid in particular. Can you tell us about the transformation you saw and maybe link it to the experience? I mean, yeah, Clear, clearly you did this with intention. Yeah, well, it was basically trying to get them to understand the ability that they had and that they can push beyond their normal limits. They can do something that, I mean, these are, some of these kids are inner city kids. So you take them and plop them out in the oh. middle of the woods with all the night noises and everything. And that in itself is totally disorienting for them. So part of that is just getting them to realize, you know, that yeah, yes, you can adjust, you can you can deal with different situations and you have people around you who you, you can lean on and help you with it. So, you know, that was such a long time ago that you, you kind of forget some of the things, but I, you know, I can remember, you know, the kids crying as they were leaving because it had been a great experience for them. And, you know, just stepping out of their normal world and into a world where, you know, you were trying to show them there's, you have this leadership ability, you have this within you to do, you just have to learn how to activate it. It's classic Magnus. I mean, talk about do a hard thing. <laughs> you set them right up. How about after? How about, were you able to stay in touch with any of them after to see any no, downline? That, in I, that, that, the regret I have there is that because it was based on the East Coast, you know, it was kind of for me, it was just, well, I'm going to go out and do this. I'm just going to sure. go out and do this and try it out. And I also did a couple of weeks out at sea on a research vessel with my geology background. My sister was an oceanographer at the time. So it was kind of a reason to get me out to the East Coast and try this stuff out. But then, you know, immediately when the camp was over, I was shooting back to Lawrence to go through some training sure. in order to, to be a head resident. So I haven't gotten as much feedback there, but I have gotten a lot of feedback from ex-students. Right? Nice. The other week I received a really, really nice note from a student that I had worked with in the peer leading program when I first started at Leiden, where students identify students that they're comfortable going to with issues. And we train those students to help them, but also to bring you know, more serious issues, you know, self-harm, suicide, you know, homicide, those kind of things. They need to get adults involved. but. He's now a wrestling coach in Texas, and he's got two young children, and he just you know, kind of sent me a Facebook message thanking me for some of the things that I did to kind of help him 
become a young man and, and think about things. So those things, they cycle through, you know, from time to time and you realize, okay, yeah, I, I did have an impact. You did, you did. And that's a great segue into your coaching experience too. So we're not hiking 10 miles a day, but right. you're teaching them a different skill. Maybe you could expand on some of those stories sure. along the way. Yeah, the interesting thing about where I coached at Leiden High School is that it's not a tennis community, period. The only tennis courts in the community, and this is basically, it's the suburbs that collar O'Hare. So it was Rosemont, Schiller Park, Franklin Park, Melrose Park, a little bit of River Grove. Not a tennis community at all. So 99% of the students that, that came to us had no tennis experience. So we had to teach them how to hold the racket. It, it was a blue collar working class community. So they really couldn't afford tennis shoes and rackets and things like we had to hustle just to get, you know, we had them for a long time. We had them sell candy to raise money to buy shoes. And the program had some rackets, but then the kids that really, that really enjoyed it and wanted to play off season, they ended up having to buy rackets and we'd help facilitate that. So basically that was the fun of the process of watching what you could start with with kids as freshmen and see what you could end up with as seniors. And it falls along all kinds of spectrums. You had the students that, you know, they're just kind of showing up when the season starts and putting their racket down when the season ends. And some kids you'd have were really good in sophomore, junior, or freshman, sophomore year, but then you'd lose them junior, senior year because they had to work to help support their families, you know? So, you know, some of the things I think you and I maybe take for granted, these mm -hmm. kids didn't have in their lives. Sometimes sure. they, they just had to work because the families were in need, but uh, we had, you know, our share of students that, you know, it really, really bought into it, worked hard and won conference championships. And that always upset the team's coaches that our kids were playing against because their kids were club kids. There were kids who were playing in tennis clubs all year round and, and getting, you know, professional coaching and, and whatnot and teaching. And so that was always gratifying, but really the fun was just in the process of getting to know the kids, getting to know what was going on in their lives, getting to know the parents and the families. I mean, it's that network, I think, that, that I really enjoyed and watching the growth, but it's also the process of getting the kids to internalize stuff and learn, yeah, you know what, I can do this. I can be successful at it. I may not be the best, but I can compete. Yeah. So that, that's a good place maybe to bring in this toughness idea I have and being the engineer in me wants to graph everything. And sure, yeah. about yeah. now, Noble put up the graph mm -hmm. uh, where we show on one axis force and the other axis pain. Yes. And they're strong words on purpose, but we have to remember they have magnitudes. We can have very subtle force sure. and we can have very something we might not even refer to pain, but it's a low level discomfort. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking before, I also want to make the point that we typically think of toughness in a physical realm and then next probably a mental realm, but there's an emotional realm to mm -hmm. it. And so the graph, I think, really can be interpreted in all three areas. And ultimately, when you said growth in kids, I'm just using the word adaption. Yeah. So we do things on a routine, consistent basis in a big part of the role of a coach and really the network that they're in. It can be other players, right? But it's to avoid injury because in all regards, if we put too much force on, yeah, we're experiencing pain, we're ultimately going to get hurt. We don't want people to get hurt. Right, right. One thing that I find amazing about the concept as I study it more and more is the ability of the human being to push that injury line out. And you talked about in your examples here, what these kids didn't realize what they could do. And so there's a perspective of the individual about where I am 
which is always a gap with where the coach sees them going mm -hmm. is a huge functionality of coaching. Right. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but let's expand on also counseling, yeah, you know? And so where can you push that in a healthy way? And again, all the way back to student athletes and sports, it becomes a lab, a different course, if you will, that actually helps people get that done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and interesting that you bring up the injury because that's something along the way that we had to deal with because the guy that I coached with, the head coach, is a math guy. He's also a national drum and bugle choreographer. So he's used to, you know, kind of very, very regimented. And for him, it was the number of balls that these kids need to hit. You know, we don't need them to hit hundreds. We need them to hit thousands. We need to hit 10,000s. So we're getting ball machines and we're really pushing the kids. But then every once in a while, you know, a kid's going to come up with tendonitis, oh, elbow issues. Yeah. Or they're, you know, they're, so it's how do you set it up so that you're getting them to get the maximum or push the maximum, but not injure themselves in the process. So that, that was kind of always one of our tricks, but you know, by the time, and Bob was great. Bob was my, the head coach. He was, you know, a master at getting the kids the equipment that they needed. And, mm -hmm. and I would argue that by the time he and I both retired, we were probably the best equipped team in the state in terms of just stuff around. The That's awesome. To, to help them have a degree of success. We were never going to win the conference championship. We're probably never going to come in second because the two teams on our conference that were always above us, they shared a tennis facility. So within, wow. between their communities. So the kids, you know, the kids' parents were paying thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. whereas our kids were showing up and we were providing the rackets, we were providing all the equipment, and there was no real, no facility for, or place for them to go within our district. So they would actually go to a neighboring community, Elmhurst, and there's a, a facility, of course, plus some of the kids would choose to play off season. Mm -hmm and to accelerate what we were trying to do with them. But, you know, we tried to provide as much opportunity as we could, but we, along the way, you know, yes, kids did get injured, but uh, if you were to see where we took a kid from point A to their senior year, you'd see a huge amount of growth. And there was a lot of pride in that. And, you know, maybe we weren't winning conference championships, but there were certain situations where, you know, it's just like really fun to see a kid come along and, get a degree of success that I think they never thought they might get. So what's the spillover into the rest of their lives? Academics, family, yeah. character. Yeah, well, here I have a list here, and this is just some. It says Ayers file on here, but teamwork, communication, growth, emotions, tenacity, coping, resilience, leadership, learning, determination, pressure, concentration, commitment, goal setting, motivation. I mean, and that's just some of the things yeah. that you're touching on. You're not always aware. You're not always intentionally doing it, but it's happening. It happens within the process of what you're trying to do. And their position in each attribute where they start and where they end is just yeah unbelievable. And it's going to vary. I mean, it, you talk about continuums and you talk about spectrums, and I always talk about continuums and spectrums. And, no. you know, like you have on, on your one axis, you have pain and then you have pleasure. But I would argue that at some point, there's a bend where the pleasure will come back into that pain and yes. because of the joy that you're receiving from saying, I didn't think I could do this, oh. but I did it. Oh. Yeah. Totally agree. And it's what previous guests have talked about where you start to understand that the, and enjoy the process Yes. Yeah. and your perspective of, of the pain. I was just talking to my brother recently. He's a, been a bodybuilder kind of his whole life. And we're talking about this pain component in relation to some things that were going on in our organization and how that spills over. And the example he used is 
know, way back when he was in high school and a foot, nothing tall mm-hmm. and, and squatting, you know, 135 pounds. And that was a big day. Right. And shortly after you get the delayed onset muscle soreness and you're like, oh, crap, I can barely walk. And all of a sudden fast forward now in light days, 435 pounds mm-hmm. and you're in your 60s. Right. Yeah. And now the delayed onset muscle soreness shows up again, but it's absolutely not a big deal. It's part of the process and you've moved that injury line. Clearly the kid a million years ago, you know, capable of 135 and putting 435 on the, I think we have a broken back and, and, you know, among other things to make the point, but I, all these attributes you talked about, I think are kind of similar that way. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing I was thinking about is just, just working with my staff. You know, I was blessed to have a great, great staff and that was, you know, six counselors, three social workers a school nurse for a good portion of it. And the fact that we, we always had to cycle back and process and we had, to, you know, we had to storm, we had to norm, we weren't always on the same page, but, you know, we shared agendas. So, you know, anything you want to do, put it on there because we need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. If there's anything that, that you think we need to be looking at. And then you create that space where people can feel, okay, I can be creative. I can try this. And we had, had a lot of people trying all kinds of different stuff and, you know, some of it worked, some of it, it, what maybe didn't work as well, but it was exciting just to be able to allow people to do that and yeah. in the process. They're working with kids and helping them along with different things. So I think this is so important because the process got these improvements. And one thing I want you to comment on is what is the role of purpose and mission along the way here? Right. And here's what we know about life is we can't all be Bezos or pick your favorite high profile Elon Musk. We can't right. all be that guy. Right. Right. Most of us are depth chart players. We're in the mix. And it's really interesting to me to kind of use as a little bit more focus and discussion on your coaching experience, because you talked about the stacked deck, Mm -hmm. but you guys as a core, your nine or 10 people you just described in one element of the organization, and then the two or three of you in the other element of the organization still got these gains. So I think it'd be really useful for people how do you get the individual? They're not dumb, mm-hmm. super smart kids, right? Yeah. That they know what's going on because they show up and see, you know, the forehand, they can't even see the ball. Mm-hmm. I could experience that too when I tried to return your serves. I couldn't see the ball. But you know what I mean? How do they step up and what was your role both as counselor and coach to, because I really believe that's part of the progression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, what you do? the interesting thing is I was at Leiden long enough where I think I went through three different mission statements, you know, because it's an educational institution. Sure. And, and when there's a new administration come in, they want to put their stamp on it. And you're also going through being as an educational institution, you have to be accredited. So part of the accreditation process is always going back and reviewing your mission and your goals and things like that. And as a department chair, I was always involved in those discussions and always involved in working with the other leaders with that. But to me, you know, you can throw the words out there. It's more, I've always been an action-based person. I mean, it's like, you know, you can, you can gussy it up all you want, but what's really happening in the trenches? How are we helping the kids? How are we making sure that we're we're guiding them in the way that we want in the guidance office. Are they getting the career information that they need? Are they getting the college information that they need? Are they getting the social emotional support that they need? You know, and are the kids on the edges, you know, the kids on the edges frequently are the ones that are taking up a lot of your time. But then, you know, I had a colleague and she very much was like, well, we got to make sure that we're, we're taking care of the middle kids too, because they're just as important, you know? 
And it was like college, college, college for everybody. Well, no, we're a comprehensive high school and our kids ACT scores fall below the national average. And most of these kids probably aren't going to end up in college or graduating from college. So how do we set them up for success? Mm-hmm. And for, with tennis, it was more, okay, I'm taking a sport that I love and that really helped me form me into the person that I am. And how can I pass this on to fam, you know, to a kid who might want to pass it on to their family, you know? So the, and that's the fun of it too. One year, again, humble brag, but I received the assistant coach of the year for the state of Illinois. Congratulations. You know, it, was, it was a fun little ceremony, but uh, a student walked up or a student, it was, it was another coach actually. And she introduced her. She said, you probably don't remember me, but I was a player for you at Elmo Park high school. And wow. Because of that experience, I became a coach. So that was more valuable to me than the trophy, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, those are the kind of things where, you know, down the road, you realize, boy, I've really impacted somebody and, and helped them through a difficult time. And so, yeah. And your story is so good, Cam, it exemplifies this tool in your tool bag called sports. Right. And in particular tennis. And so all the things you are, you're kind of, you talked about the end of the bell curve kids and all that kind of thing, but you're pushing these kids through this machine that inherent helps the process. And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do with the fit professionals to recognize now let's use the opportunity. Now I'm out of high school and how do I continue that development? And should athletics or sport be part of it? And again, we have the emotional, mental, and physical components. Yeah. And a lot of people think of all sport, physical component. I'm not so sure. No, I think it's more yeah. complete. Yeah, I can't understate the importance and the value of athletics to me for a lot of reasons. I mean, it, in some ways, it was an emotional escape for me to give me a place to, okay, I can just clear my mind and go do this and not worry about all this other stuff that's going on in my life. You know, whether it was academic stress when I was in college or, you know, after when I got into the high school setting, I was dealing with extremely intense situations pretty much on a daily basis. As a department chair, you know, everything kind of filtered through me. So you're dealing with abuse situations, you're dealing with suicide situations, you're dealing with, you know, kids who have parents who have major mental health issues and things like that. So stepping out of that role with that hat and going to the the sporting field was a nice way for me to kind of detox from the day and do something different that I loved. And I knew that I was, you know, making positive influences there. And then I could go home, you know, and, and then I could kind of, you know. So it had an element of recovery to it. For sure. Absolutely. So you're active, right? You're yeah, sweating, but you're recovering. As a coach, the reality of it, I, I wasn't as active as I would have liked to be because you're teaching. You're busy teaching and telling people to go here and there. And so the systems aren't in sync. It's part of Another thing I want to talk about. So your physical system, you're sweating and it's 90 degrees, but your emotional and mental systems are in complete recovery mode. Correct. Yeah. So I hope the listener grabs that because. Then I I go home and thankfully I was blessed with Susie, my wife, who wouldn't question me about specifics of the day because I didn't want to re- rehab. Yeah. And then how do you go to sleep? Yeah. And that took a long time. I mean, that professionally, even as a therapist, you know, my mind was really sharp back then, you know, in terms of the mental piece, there was a point where I could probably sit down after an hour session with somebody and I could run through it completely, almost word for word. I mean, 
mentally, but I don't have that anymore. But that also then came at a cost because, you know, then you get into what Magnus talks about is the narrowing and the perseverating and the rumination and all that stuff. And you have to learn that, you know what, I can't do, I can't go there because then that will just, that'll make me freeze and be debilitating. So, yeah. so part of that was stepping back and realizing, okay, part of my role as a therapist, but also as a coach is I have to teach people how to internalize how they can get through these things, how to create that space. So in the counseling world, we talk about a toolbox of coping skills, you know, and in coaching, you're talking about a toolbox. Okay. How do I break down a specific, you know, whether we're working on your serve or your backhand or a volley, so you can take it piece by piece, learn the mechanics, and then work it through repetition over and over and over again, learn it that, okay, how do I get to that flow where I'm actually, I'm actually doing it without thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the, like the, the professional sports metaphor. Well, yeah, okay, you step into a professional sport. It's going to take you some time. Even though you're a world-class athlete, you're one of the best in the world, but now you're in with all the rest of the best. And you have to know, okay, what is my assignment? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And you have to work at hard at getting from that mental piece where it's actually, okay, this is actually second nature. And that's where experiential capital comes in. And you know, oh. that's... That's deliberate practice. Like, deliberate practice and practice over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. What was kind of interesting about the game of tennis was we probably had a higher percentage of competition relative to practice oh, yeah. than a lot of other sports. For sure we did. For sure we did. Like football is completely the opposite. Basketball, you play basketball. I mean, the what is it, 95% is practice. Yeah, and we were blessed. That's where that experience rolls in, right? You and I weren't really tennis, tennis kids. Uh-oh. We were just out having fun and doing stuff, right? And this was a fun thing for us to do, but we were blessed to have tennis kids around us. Yeah. So we would walk into practice True. and our game actually was elevated by the games of the kids around us because it had to be. And, and I my coach did a great job with it. Yeah. And so call out to Stan, Stan Hillstead yeah. did a great job. Yeah. It took us a long way in the short amount of time. But then the reality, when we got to the state tournament, we had to buy the first first match, which was nice. So we got further in and, and we played a good second, what would be a second match, but it was a first match and, and got us into the round of 16. And then we ran into kids who had played thousands of matches. Oh, and, and Kind of a buzzsaw. Yeah. yeah. But, we did pretty good though. Yeah, but that was the reality. I think it was three sets. Yeah, that was the fun of it is, okay, yeah. you know, there's always somebody out there who's doing more than you're doing or, or knows more about what you're doing. But that was still, it was, it was eye-opening, but it was, the whole process was fun. Well, and I got to give accolades to you too. I'm going to have Nova insert this picture of you holding me. Because Cam carried me all the seasons and with the issues that I was going through and learning how to control the freak out, Mm -hmm. as Magnus says, that finally started to happen kind of a match or two into the sectional tournament. And it is so apparent to me what happened to our game. Mm -hmm. And had I not gone through that transition, I'm not sure we would have been that competitive down the line and you really helped me get there. And I think it's a personal story on my end where... I experienced that. In other sports, I didn't experience that. But in that sport, it maybe generated, and we won't psychoanalyze Paul here, but for some reason, there's a big fear of failure. Right. There's a shame involved in it. And it just, you helped me just get over it. And uh, thanks for doing that. Because I wonder, again, there's magnitudes to these kind of comments. And let's go back to professional industrial setting, using the corollary of sports and the transition that you go through 
even though you might be a professional, let's say you're in a service firm, like an accounting firm or a law firm or something like that, and you're feeling their kind of burden, like you shared, you had the burden of significant cases that mm -hmm. you experience this magnitude that I think a lot of professionals don't in terms of pressure mm -hmm. of the situation and, and the consequence of not performing is, and of course we all feel that, but it's got a magnitude to it. Yeah. in reality, especially from a third party looking in. But when we're in there, it's our deal. And I really want the listener to understand how they can use this. And what I want to talk about is we've touched on it, but we've talked about the physical component, but there's this emotional and mental part. And it's coming into endurance sports right now where they talk excessively, and I think in a productive way, about cognitive load. But I think there's emotional load. And I think sport, we talked about that point where it really does hit you emotionally and mentally. And then the added fatigue from your brain, what, sucking 20% of your calories or whatever the real number is, mm -hmm. and energy input, it, it, that's so real. My objective is really to convince professionals to incorporate sport as one tool in their tool bag. Correct. Yes. I'm not saying it's the only tool. No. And there's so many people that just don't. I really am on this yeah. deal where I want them to bring it in because it's so effective. But right. let's get into, remember our graph, we have force and pain. Let's talk about the emotional. What's an emotional force and what's emotional pain? And how do we get the adaption through support? But again, I'll argue with you on this. Please do. Because sport, That's all I do. sport is, is really important in my life, really important in your life, and really important in, in many people's life. But, but one of the things that I would tell freshmen coming in, and this is what I would tell you know, young executives, you have to have something beyond the core, which is, you know, in school, it's academics. So what I would tell freshmen, and especially the ones that I was mentoring and doing group guidance with it, you have to have something beyond it, extracurricular. Sports is a primary extracurricular in a school, but so is the band. So is well, the, absolutely. So is well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all, all the, the clubs and organizations. I would like to add that, in my view, an extracurricular with a competitive component, right? Yeah, is what I'm talking about. So where, where, debate, where you are where you are pushing yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and then depending the, on the individual, one can be profoundly impactful where the other one is. Yeah. And that's the arena where you grow and you go through these processes and you learn, you learn successes, you learn failures, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to win with grace, you learn how to lose with, you know, with grace also. And I think that's really important in the whole process is that you have put yourself in the arena and you've put yourself at risk. You've made yourself vulnerable and that's how you're going to grow. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to push yourself. I mean, I guess one of the things where I look at, oh, you know, if I just would have made that free throw against Lacrosse Central when I was a senior when we were playing them at their gym, you know, we might've had a chance to have it in our minds, well, we can beat them when we get to the state tournament because our senior year, we made it to the semifinals and we lost to a, a team from Milwaukee who ended up ultimately beating Lacrosse Central. But there you're looking not only at this game, but okay, where is this gonna take me? Where is it gonna carry me? How is it gonna help me You know, down the road? And for sure, there's so many lessons to be learned within the athletic arena. No, in the extracurricular arena. And so that's why I think when you're, even even when you're looking at it organizationally, it's like, okay, how do we create the system where everybody trusts each other enough where we can go beyond that and be creative and try these mm -hmm. things and not feel like we're being judged or assessed or, you know, so that one of the things that I think Magnus talked about was, and it's not, it wasn't contrived, 
it was Popovich would take his team, the Spurs, out and they would have meals. But what he was doing was he was mm. sharing his passion for food and for wine and, you know, those kind of things. And it's like sharing the passion of what you have, what you can bring, and maybe this can become part of what you like to do too. Mm -hmm. And building trust and fellowship, yeah. trust and loyalty, which mm -hmm. is absolutely a part of the process. If your team member has to put themselves out, they want to know that the person asking them to find that new level right. is trustworthy. And, and that, you know, that's where sometimes the, my two worlds at school would collide. You know, I'd be, I'd be, cause I'm the, I was the go-to person. There's a kid in an emergency situation. We probably have to involuntarily hospitalize them. We have, you know, probably going to have an ambulance come to school. Guess what? Calling my other team, my coaching team saying, I'm not going to be there. You guys got to cover for me because my priority is to stand outside of, you know, the office of the, either the social worker or the counselor or the, you know, the family and be there to support all the way. And sometimes I was involved directly in it. And I was the one who was, who was making sure that the student was being taken to the hospital. But, you know, that kind of situation where, okay, now I have to prioritize. And my primary job is a counselor and making sure that the kid is safe and that the family has the resources that they need. And, and so Again, you're kind of being modest and congratulations. I mean, the, the foundational character that you have and you brought to your world is just rolls over in spades. And I kind of get goosebumps listening about those kind of stories because, man, if the world had more camps, I mean, I'm, but that doesn't happen without the team that I have. Oh, of well, course. See, there you, there you go again. <laughs> you know, but, but that's that's working. And even going back to, you know, our friend Scott and Brian is that you, you have to be present. You have to be with them. You have to be going through it with them. You have to have done it in order, you know, yeah. you have to know it inside and out in order to be able to help people get through it and manage it and realize, okay, you know, these are for sure, potentially freak out situation. I mean, yes. You know, they're insanely, but you know, if you approach it with a calm response and part of that, I learned through my athletic career. Yeah. No question. No question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's pivot a little bit. I want to get into this idea of cognitive dissidence. Mm -hmm. It finds, it finds its way into the professional world, just like so sneaky. Mm -hmm. I have to give a presentation. I have to talk to a client. A lot of the younger professionals this day and age, I'm noticing with, you know, the thumbs and clicking, just getting on the phone mm -hmm. drives cognitive dissonance. Yes. And it, it's so... And it's dissonance, cognitive dissonance. Am I saying it wrong? Yeah. Of course I am. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, but you know, what, you know what the idea yeah. is. Yeah, thank you. It, the cell phone in and of itself is a way for people to dissociate and just, you know, take their mind somewhere else. It's also addictive. There's also all kinds of issues that I see in and around that. And that's where I think you look, you have to look at, you know, some of the meta analysis in terms of, of what that means. And people are going to react and bring to a situation what they know and how they've learned to manage or adapt or whatever. So the, the dissonance piece is they're not really seeing everything. And that's where he's talking about zooming in and zooming out and, and, you know, being able to step back and say, wait, let me get more information as to what is actually going on and what are we trying to deal with here and how can we best adapt to it? How can we be creative? Whereas the zooming in and the narrowing, that's where the, some of the cognitive dissonance is going to happen because you don't have enough information and your mind is going to take you where it's, it's most comfortable. And okay, this is my coping skill. So I've talked to a lot of students about, okay. 
part of what you have to learn is to, to rise above what you're dealing with and step out of it and realize, okay, there are places that I can get to, but it's not going to be easy. And guess what? I can't do it for you. You know, and you have to learn how to do it yourself. You have to, like you say, get those tools, mm -hmm. the process, and to realize, okay, this is a trigger for me. I need to step back, create the space that Magnus talks about in my mind and say, okay, instead of doing this, because I've always done this and I've, this is, you know, I keep getting the same result. No, I, I need to step back and realize, okay, I don't need to step into the toehole. I can walk around it. I can choose not even to go down that path. I can create a bridge. You know, what are some of the other options yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, and that's the process. And that's the part that people have to work at. Well, my mind is on the following. It's Magnus implies that the ability to do what you're describing is a bit transferable. In other words, if I get good at it in one place, I might be better in another place. I don't think it's literally transferable. In other words, if you're afraid of spiders or speaking in front of somebody, mm -hmm. you might be able to execute, but that doesn't mean you're feeling all jolly about no, it. No, no, no. And but, but, that, but being willing to be uncomfortable. Yes. That's the big piece. And the choice. Yeah. And then no, having through deliberate practice, which I think is so important, is starting to understand that I can, I'm going to be okay on the other side. Yes. And, and making that choice. That's why I'm a little bit focused maybe too much on sports is because I've been able to reach more panic situations. You know, when I'm at elevation, trying to push pedals on a bike with the pressure of a partner, and I literally having hypoxia mm -hmm. and I can't do it and I'm fighting literal panic. Yeah. Well, and that's where you're probably a little bit too humble also. The things that you're doing at your age and pushing yourself athletically, not many people are within your age group. I mean, you had to go on a, not a national level, an international level to find somebody that could help you do some of the processes that you wanted to do. So you are purposely seeking out stuff that a lot of people wouldn't unless you encourage them to do that. And this is your passion and that's where it took you. Yes. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that. Plus, I, I really am convinced that it helps me do a better job in the rest of my life. Oh, for sure. I'm absolutely convinced. And when I, like right now, that was a bucket list thing you just described. And I've had people say, what's next? And for a long time, it's, you know, the emotional recovery that's required the mental recovery that's required and certainly there was a physical recovery that at my age took you know half a year it seemed like all of a sudden i'm emerging from that and guess what <laughs> what next is starting to ease its way in but that's why i'm on sport because i in my experience and i appreciate your feedback because it's kind of an interview for my concept and to mm -hmm. refine these concepts make them workable and improve them for right. people well so they're actionable as a favor to me Please quickly give a synopsis of what we're talking about so that the people out there know what we're talking about. You mean the race? Yes. Okay. I did a five-day stage race called the Swiss Epic. You can Google it. It's on every year. It's quite challenging. It's not a just a tour. Everybody's competitive. Last year, they took only 415 teams of two. Not quite 20% of them are actually, it's an actual pro race. And of course, we're not doing that. We're amateurs, but it was really aiming very much above what my skill set is and my ability to actually perform. But it's about finding that line. And the line was definitely found in a call out from my partner, Rob Lee, who was just so, talk about high character like you, Kim. The way he encouraged me and held me in there, 
He was 10 or 11 years younger than me, but that doesn't matter. He's a significantly uh, talented athlete. Right. Yeah. And so what mattered was his ability to realize where we were at and then work with me through that process. Let me do my thing, by the way. Thanks, Rob. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like the tennis court in the old days. It was very quiet, actually. Right. Yeah. And it was very internalized. And it was at one point, to give you an idea, it was a day four, absolutely exhausted. And we had our final second to last climb asphalt in a mountain bike race. So usually people are kind of jacked up about that. And mm -hmm. I am just, all the matches are burnt. And what happens in bike racing is your partner pushes you. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I could not believe what he, he was pushing me so much that then with my hypoxia and fatigue, I couldn't actually keep up to how much he was, he was pushing. He was pushing me. Right. It's starting to wear me out beyond being able to finish the race. And I had trouble actually communicating that to him. And I think in that moment he was, I'm trying to help you, dude. Right. And I think he got the message, but he managed to keep his frustrations at bay, I think, really good through the race. But we still managed to beat, I think, 84 of the teams. And we moved up every single day. Yeah. And yeah. so from that aspect, when I look back, it was a life-changing event. And honest to God, for the listener, thanks for bringing that up. But my contribution to the message today is I really believe you don't have to do that. We no, talked about well, that, that, that's pushing you. Yeah, but what is what is your envelope and what yeah. is the thing? And the reason I'm biased towards sports is it does really, you really can find challenge that brings in all three components. Plus you get the added benefit of the fitness and what that does. There's a book called Outlive by Adia. I've forgotten his first name right now. But he talks about just the fact of a permanently sedentary person can get up to three hours a week in what's considered a zone two workout, which would just be walking right. at a pace that makes it just a little bit uncomfortable to talk. Yeah. You still can, but just that zone two, if you do that three days a week, you cut the four horsemen, he calls them, the typical morbidities that kill Americans right. in half. Yep. Just yeah. going to three hours a week. And that's why I'm so excited about this. And so if you get to that point, where should you go? And we haven't talked about that yet. I really think purpose matters. Yeah. You know, why did I do what I did? It's not to say, look at me and what I did. It's to find my line. Yes. And I think, and, and tell and, us about that. How does and, someone... And define who you are ultimately as a person, as a human being, you know? Off center. Yes. As opposed to sedentary in profession. For That's... I have this bias towards action. Maybe it's well, even a, a compulsion. We'll say that for a different day, but. The exercise piece is, is, again, the physical, but the physical is tied into the mental. And, and the emotion. And the emotional. And you know what? Now you're at a point now where you're way lower altitude and you're getting a lot more oxygen into your brain and your body's recovering. Oh, yeah. And now is when you can sit back and reflect and say, okay, wow. You know, and I would think that you're still occasionally you'll get a takeaway that'll pop into your head now. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, okay, wow. there's some more war stories I could tell, Ooh, but let's. But here's another thing that I've been finding myself reflecting on because I'm retired and I'm not in that space of counseling anymore. And I've chosen to step away from the coaching. I could, I could easily have gone back into the coaching, but you know, I dealt with enough vicarious trauma from my job no that, that I carried with me. And I sat down at the end of my high school career and I actually started looking at the seasons that I had coached and I had coached 52 seasons. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, 
What a contribution. Okay. That's a commitment, but also it comes at a cost. You know, I'm eternally thankful to Stuart, to Emmett, and to Susie for allowing me that space to do that. I missed a lot of stuff in the process, but I made commitments that I felt like, you know, when you make a commitment, you have to follow through with it. So now in my personal life, I'm okay. I've spent my life taking care of others. I need to start taking care of, you know, identifying what, how to take care of myself mm -hmm. in different ways. You know, I've, I've always had athletics. It was always a way for me to, to make sure that I was taking care of the physical piece, the mental and emotional, I, you know, I continue to work on, but Finn and I are out for at least a two mile loop every morning now. Finn being an awesome dog. My dog. Yeah. Yes. So gets me out of the house, gets me that to where I, okay, I can push myself. I'm going to walk hard to the park and there's a rogue group of dogs that get together. We have them at, at the local park with all the signs posted. Don't have your dogs off leash. <laughs> and then we won't tell. Right? So, and, you know, so that's part of it. I am still involved in, in coaching. I do United States Adaptive Golf. You can look it up on the internet, Adaptive Golf, or on YouTube. It's fun. We go to local high schools and work with special needs students and teach them how to chip and putt with oversized so clubs cool. and yeah. Velcro targets. And at the end of the six-week practice, the, their teacher puts on a Mr. Bullseye outfit, and the kids are able to hit ball, tennis balls at him fun. So, or her. She fun. So, yeah, so trying to you know figure out that, reconnect, but then start looking, okay, what are the things that I'm really continue to want to be passionate about. I love to cook. I love art. I love, I read constantly. So this was fun because I think I got this book on a Tuesday and I think, you know, between everything else that I was doing, I was finished with it, I think on Sunday or Monday. So, but also looking at, you know, a lot of what was in the book, I felt like, well, this is kind of stuff that I did over the course of my career. No which, doubt. Yeah. Which helped reaffirm you know, I was never the tough, tough coach, although I have, this is a story I like to tell about Stuart when he was probably six or seven, he was outside and we had these planters that were about maybe knee high and he was sitting on a bench and he fell backwards and this was, none of us were around. He comes inside and he's like, dad, I don't think I can shake this one off. You know, talking about the physically, <laughs> physically tough, tough coach. I'm like, what's going on? I felt bad. So I, I pull his shirt up and he's got holes of skin missing all the way down his spine because he had run his spine just somehow perfectly right down the, the bricks. <laughs> oh no. With, you know, I mean, back then it was like rub a little dirt on, shake it <laughs> off. You know, those are the things that we were taught. Yeah. So, like, so that's it. That's a kind of a funny little story, but, uh, but it also, well, yeah, you know, I don't think you're going to shake that one up. That one's going to hurt. Yeah. 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 I, you know, in the book, he compares Bobby Knight and Vince Lombardi. I don't think they should be used in the same sentence yeah. based on what I've read about both. And I don't know because I'm not a historian on those two gentlemen, but, right, right, yeah. but what's interesting about the coaches of the past that people they definitely had a compassionate side to them sure as totally. opposed to i'm going to push you over your line i mean part of coaching is to help move that line and and that's really interesting i another podcast that's coming out is with coach simmers national championship mm -hmm. division one double a with north dakota state university and the subject is tough coaching and when you listen to them it just all about compassion and caring for his kids. It's right. all, I mean, it's, I let the cat out of the bag. Maybe we'll have to put you after that podcast, but, but it's, I mean, but, I don't know as much about, but his, some of his antics were just to me, you know, they're antip charts, antithetical yeah. to what, what anything that you're trying yeah, to Non-disagreement with the parts that's the people that went through his system and the degree to which they had success. Now, of course it was during a specific 
period of time where they had that ability because they received some capital and okay, now what can I do with yeah. this? But but he taught them things that, that yeah. you know. I mean, I, I met Bob Skaronsky and talked to him numerous times because he was one of the linemen for Lombardi and he used to to work out at, at Lawrence University's gym, but he also was a supporter of Lawrence Athletics. So I would go to him every year to get him to help us out with our basically our basketball program and basketball yearbook. But he had a great deal of success in his private life, as did, you know, Willie Davis, as did mm-hmm. all of these guys, you know, they went on to multi-million. Yeah, and Max I, McGee. I mean, and I'm sure you were there. So we had Max McGee, Jerry Kramer, and Paul Horning. And, uh, yeah, Horning. Horning and, uh, were you there for all of them? I, I think know, I, 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 no, I was always busy coaching. Uh, yeah, it was during those <laughs> days, but at the, another mutual friend of ours in a group of us had those guys come in for a part of a fundraiser, and they all talked just affectionately about Lombardi. I mean, of course, they had their stories, but... Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I said what I said because of that firsthand knowledge. I mean, I mean, to be in a room with Jerry Kramer and have him pass his Super Bowl ring around and let you try it on was yeah, that was pretty cool deal. Yeah, but, but getting back to the subject of the day, because that stuff's fun, is what did I miss? What should we talk about with your expertise on this subject? I think that the important thing is regulation strategies and realizing that they can always change and that they're going to change. They're going to change over the course of your lifetime. I deal with things differently in my 60s than I did in my 50s or 40s or 30s. But along the way, I'm widening my ability to look at certain things and deal with certain things with different strategies. And to me, the thing that Magnus, I really kind of, you were talking about zooming in and zooming out. The importance of ritual to me Hmm. is really, really important. You know I mean? And why? How does it work? Well, to me, it goes back to centering. And ironically, it's Lombardi, but one of the things as a coach that I told my kids all the time is early is on time, on time is late. So if you're early, you have time to get yourself settled in, relax, be ready for whatever the demand of what it is you're going to be dealing with. Become present, just like the leader. Become present, whereas if you're rushing in and you're, you know, you're not there and you're not calm, and you're not relaxed, then, you know, okay, maybe instead of being at peace, you're kind of on edge and you're not quite present there because you get too much stuff running through your head. So if you notice that I rolled in about a half hour early and made sure that I was intentional on being early because this is nerve wracking for me because I've never done a podcast before. So knocking it out of the park, pal. So I want to relax and, and have some fun. Yeah. I know we're just going to talk about stuff, but then you're not going to ruminate. You're not going to suppress stuff. As an athlete, you're always working towards that state where you're actually in that flow, where it's just natural. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come around very often, but it's the training and the getting to that point. What an excellent takeaway for the professionals out there. Just like going into a staff meeting, use what you right. just described about being centered and getting present. Right. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of people probably have their version of that, but do they execute on it? Mm-hmm. So minimally, they get a great reminder of its effectiveness. And it's not easy. And, you know, in the counseling office, stuff was coming at us from all different directions. And, you know, just to create that space where, no, we're going to stop. We're going to process. We're going to see where we're at. And you don't always have the chance to do that. I mean, I even ran a number of groups with co-facilitators. And, you know, ideally, you're going to be able to process what we talked about right away. And who are the kids that we need to check in with? And where are they at? What's going on? But then, boom, you know, the demands of everything around you sometimes take that away. But not being afraid to, okay, you know what, we need to come back to this at some point. And let's intentionally come back 
and do this. And I'm going to throw one of my colleagues under the bus a little bit here, but he retired probably six or seven years ago. And he and I remained very close, but he's a single guy who I actually had to go help him at the hospital when he had a heart attack in our parking lot. So I had to go and hang out with him while he was having a stent put in and, you know, an excellent athlete. He graduated from UW lacrosse and actually was a health teacher and was sending so many kids down to our office through his health class because the kids trusted him and they understood him and he's a great teacher. I approached him kind of early in my career or early in his career. And I said, John, you need to get a counseling degree and you need to come join us in the counseling office so that we have you helping, you know, the kids in the building in a grander scale than just through health class because they are only going to access you if they have you as a teacher in health class versus we get you in the counseling office. And he was a coach also. But long story short, I've been on him for probably four or five years to get a will, you know, because he's had health issues in the past. He lives alone. Anything that he's been able to create a fairly good, you know, amount of assets for himself, and he's going to pass it on probably to his nieces and his nephews. And I'm like, well, John, you have to do this not for yourself, but you have to do it for your family because the last thing that they need to deal with is probate court. You know, you have, to, you have to be thinking about them. And so I got a text from him this morning that he saw my lawyer. And <laughs> so nice. that's a win. That's, that's a coaching win. It's a yeah. collegial win. It's a friendship win. So yeah. you know, those are the kind of things that uh, be grateful for the people that you're around, be service oriented. And I know that you certainly are. And that's what part of this podcast is about is you want to give back to the community, give back to you sports, those kind of things, but you know, support, develop and encourage. Nice. Yeah. And you know, for young executives, teach old guys like us, what we need to know, you know, we're baby boomers. So yeah. <laughs> the world changed, the world changed. Yeah. Yeah. It really did. And we're dealing with it. And then I came across a quote. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this in there. This is a BF Skinner quote. I'm not a huge BF Skinner fan, but the, you know, psychologist, but a, a failure is not always a mistake. It may simply be the best you can do under the circumstances. The real, real mistake is to stop trying. So excellent. Take that away. I mean, put yourself in the arena. Athletics and sports puts you in an arena where you have to compete, you have to adjust, you have to modify, and you really find out, okay, what are my limitations? What don't I know? What do I have to work on? You know, pickleball is one of the things that I'm looking at possibly doing. You know, just continue to push that envelope. Like, what can a professional do? First of all, a guy named Brett Tangley, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I saw it on YouTube, but I haven't watched it. Right? Yeah, yeah, Brett in that podcast brought up this till we were talking about the, what is it? 98.6% of athletes stop at high school. And he said, no, they stop being coached. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting to consider and as something for everybody to consider. But, and that leads me into a question for you is what can a professional do? You know, going out and getting a coach takes real money and real time, but what are some things that you can recognize about yourself that you might be stuck, you know, I mean, we're talking about a population of people now, the average professional who's very busy, they have family, they have their job and they have something else. Maybe they volunteer, maybe it's their lawn, maybe it's their garden, they're booked. They're feeling kind of this urge to progress and improve, but they're stuck. Do you have any things they could look at or any advice right there on getting unstuck and moving forward? Sure, but, well, we've been blessed, you and I, to be surrounded by a peer group that is highly functional, highly effective, and very successful. So part of it is just being vulnerable and not being afraid to ask those people to mentor you. 
you know, Yogi's a mentor for you. Scott's a mentor for you. You have many people around you. You can, you know, Kurt Travis, anybody that can add value to what you're doing and can help you if you're willing to take that risk. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's, it's opening yourself up to, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I'm not sure how to approach it. Can you give me some advice on how to get unstuck? And trying to figure out with someone, what is it that has me stuck? How do I get pushed beyond it? I, that's, I mean, it's spectacular advice. What if I'm afraid to do it if I'm out there? Right. What would you tell that person? The fear piece is that's kind of, okay, you're, why, how did you get stuck here? Hmm. Right. I mean, what is it that caused you to be so afraid? And then it, what Magnus would say is cognitively, if you zoom out, take a look at the bigger picture. Well, I've done all these different things in my life and good, bad, and different. I've learned from them. So how, what can I learn from this? You know, what is it? And then counseling, that's one of the most difficult things is to get pers a person out of that negative spiral. And is it just emotional or is it physical? Is it biochemical? You know, so who is it that we can, you know, step out? And who is it that we can bring in to kind of help that? Might be a therapist, might be a doctor, you know, might be a friend, mm -hmm. might be, you know, okay, I'm doing, 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 I need to stop. I need to recalibrate. I need to just kind of relax, step back, take some deep breaths. I no longer have this hypoxia, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can breathe. Yeah, I can breathe. And for someone who's always had breathing issues anyways, you know, that you're pushing that envelope, it's, you know, it's really cool, but it's going to be scary at some point. It's like, oh my right. God, I've pushed myself to, you know, am I at my limit? Am I beyond my limit? So the hard part of, about answering that question is it's so situational dependent. And there's so many variables that each individual person brings to the situation. And it's the internalizer that is afraid to say anything or do anything. I always found really hard and difficult to try to, okay, we got to coach you out of there. The externalizer, you know, they're throwing their racket, they're banging, oh, yeah. they're swearing. I mean, it's calling balls out, you can't <laughs> see. Calling balls in yeah, there. The out. externalizer is like, okay, <laughs> this person has it. You know, we know this person, but it's the internalizer. And he refers to like those who self-harm, you know, as a mm -hmm. form of release. That's, you know, it's a difficult, difficult population to deal with, especially on the far end of the spectrum, because that's how they're getting their emotional, physical, mental release. And it's like, yeah. but that's unhealthy. So how do we try to get you to, to see things more healthier? With the executive, it's you have to not be afraid to step out of your comfort zone, take those risks, but then evaluate, okay, what worked, what didn't work, and how am I going to continue to, hmm. to move in that process? Because you and I have the, the benefit of being older and having gone through many, many situations, mm -hmm. you know, where okay, I did fairly well there and other days it's like, you know, you when you're working, there are many days where you walk out of the office and say, did I accomplish anything today? Or, you know, I may have had my C game today. No doubt. But then there are those days where, okay, now I had my A day. But that's going to vacillate. Mm -hmm. And kind of, kind of with your optimizing charts as well, okay, this is my normal curve now. But if I work at it five years from now, my normal curve is going to be much different. And it's going to be, it's going to move out on the spectrum. And you just, that's part, all part of the process and, oh. and being able to stop and realize, you know, I'm, I'm much better at what I, certain things now than I used to be, but I didn't get there without going through all the difficult stuff mm -hmm. and all the fearful stuff and all the, can I really handle this kind of oh, I mean, I, I think you've answered this question a little bit, but I want to make sure we, the listener doesn't miss anything. So now that was the individual. How about the peer or the supervisor or the leader? 
And so you believe you have evidence and I, as opposed to an opinion, I think evidence is important that a person might be stuck. Maybe it's a measure is flat. Maybe it's attendance. I don't know what it is, but you've come to a conclusion. What should a manager or leader do? Because we're getting into a space that they probably don't have a lot of, they're not cam with. Well, in the psychiatric setting, in the therapeutic setting, you're going through supervision all the time. So. You may do something clinically, but then you're going to go back to your supervisor and say, okay, this is what we're doing clinically. Am I taking the right steps? Is there something that I'm missing? Is there something that I should be thinking about in terms of that? So supervision within the clinical setting is extremely important as it is in the coaching setting. You have other coaches that you can ask to mentor you, to teach you, mm -hmm. what did I not do? And, and I'm still learning from some of the guys that I coach with now, you know, yeah. in the adaptive yeah. so, so coaches can ask other coaches. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so the, got this going on. What have you done? And the whole idea in supervision is to create a space where you can give people a direct, straightforward feedback and have them not take it so personal. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this isn't about you as a person. This is about you as a professional. No. And these are the tools that you need, you have that I think are excellent, but there are some things that you really, really have to work on. Mm -hmm. And in listening is a huge one. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, people wanting to power through because, you know, that's it. And the whole, there, again, this would be a whole nother podcast, but the narcissism that he refers to in millennials, because they've been, you're getting a word for everything. <laughs> you haven't done anything. We'll do that. One. You haven't done the hard work, but you know, so then it's like, well, it's correct. Everything should just come easily. Well, no, the hard work is what adds value to everything that I feel like I've done. Huh. You know, I mean, the time that I've spent, the time that, and, you know, again, I step back and say, well, there's some things that, that I chose work in athletics over, you know, some personal stuff where, you know, now I have to, that stuff has to fade. And now I have to get back to recognizing, you know, this personal stuff is really, really the foundation. You know, my family's my foundation and I've been able to do everything I was taught by my parents and now I've, I've hopefully I've taught my kids and I feel like they're on a pretty good path but now I have to okay now where are Susie and I at where are we going to head those mm. kind of things. so excellent um, yeah I mean you need to be surrounded by people oh. yeah. and then ultimately when my dad says we're herd animals you know and, yeah. and we are. I mean the, the herd is very important and for young executives surround yourself with like-minded people but people that can push you Mm -hmm. And that fear factor is, well, you know what, you have to create your own internal belief that, yes, I will measure up. I just have to work at it mm -hmm. and, and repetition over and over and over again. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I can't believe it's, we're already way into this. So I think we'll be back another day. Certainly invite you back. It was a blast. Yeah, start thinking about your final comments and takeaways you'd like to give to the listener while I do mine. There's a chance to think about it a little sure. bit, but... Sure. I have two primaries that I came away with today. One, I definitely learned from Cam. I've never really thought about it that way is the idea of centering before something and getting my faculties together. And for me, it was a time period. Like I have an event on Sunday that's going to be a real challenge for me on the bike. And I'm using my coaches, Rob Lee's approach. Another, my coaches, Rob Lee and the other guys, Rob mm -hmm. Lee. I have two Rob Lee's in my life, but. Cool. Anyway, my coach, Rob Lee, talks about making the decision to accept what's about to happen. And I've always done that, like right now, it's Thursday. 
and it's not till Sunday. But what I learned from you today is there's also a centering that has to happen in order to improve your presence and be more effective in about what's to happen, which is kind of this clearing of all the other wagons of crap you're pulling. Let them go. Be where you are. So that was one. The second one is I... And that you're talking about mindfulness. That's, so, thank you, that's yes. all mindfulness training. Yes. yes. And so I definitely feel like I have another tool for my tool bag there. And then the second one is, I think, I feel like I have more questions than to share, but this whole emotional and mental component of what it means to be tough. And by that, it really doesn't mean you're taking pain, but you're going through whatever it takes you to be more effective, be comfortable being uncomfortable, like Magnus says. But in those particular components of your being is something that is going to be fascinating. I'm just highly curious now to learn more and see if I can figure out a way to bring that in. Because I consider myself with my industrial engineering, really that expertise is to pull from other areas, systems, success, and see if you can adopt them to make results in other places. So that realm on the emotional mental component, I think is really hanging out there and I can't wait to do more research for it. So Parting thoughts. Yeah, just a couple. I mean, I wrote some things down. I had a lot of thoughts about the book, but it's the countless hours of mental, physical, and emotional rehearsal that will ultimately make you internalize what you need to internalize in terms of being a good executive, being a good coach, being a good parent, being a good spouse, all those things. I mean, it's just, you have to dedicate time to it. And so there are no shortcuts. Uh, there are no shortcuts. You have to, to choose to go about it. The other thing I found myself writing and kind of underlining was develop a quiet ego. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about humility and whatnot, but you have to internalize a secure, flexible sense of self that whatever I step into, I can manage this and I can deal with it and I can learn from it and I can teach from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You've been spectacular. Well, not bad. Yeah. I want to have you back someday. I know you come up to Eau Claire and uh, yeah, hey, we have plenty to talk that that subject you brought up. There's, I think there's a lot more. Oh, yeah. yeah. And well, so I really appreciate you and your willingness to help out the Fit Professional One podcast. So anyway, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate all of you. I'm always grateful for the time you invest with the Fit Professional One podcast. Please don't forget to share like and subscribe that will help us meet our objective of clawing back effort to our communities in which we live and work so with that i hope you have just an excellent day it's time to get to work